Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. I'm back after not recording my voice last week, and that's because I didn't have my mic cord with me. Um, silly me. But I still wanted to get this episode out on time. Also, we begin a new sermon series this week. As last week was a standalone on Pentecost, but now we're moving into a series going through the Sermon on the Mount, which you can find in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, if you want to read that. So, the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most significant sections in all of the New Testament. One of the ways I've heard others talk about the Sermon on the Mount is that this is Jesus giving us a glimpse into what the kingdom of heaven will be like uh, when it's fully realized through that saving and transformative work of Jesus, you know, how we will be transformed into uh, beings that con- that constitute the kingdom of heaven. And it's, it's interesting because it's a place where seemingly everything we think about the way the world works or how it should work is all like flipped upside down or, you know, the upside down kingdom, if you've heard it described that way. And so as we work through these series, kind of be thinking about that, like how is Jesus potentially flipping our narratives about how we often think about how the world ought to work? And then how do we actively live this out and live out this vision that Jesus is laying the groundwork for? Because it's not just that he's giving us knowledge, but he's trying to instruct us on how to be transformed, like a new way to not only think, but to live. So things to be thinking about as we work through or as you read through the Sermon on the Mount. And with that, I hope you enjoy Pastor Ben Kramer's sermon in this first part of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. at what these Beatitudes that we just sang mean for us today. And I want us to continue to ask these questions. What does Jesus mean by blessed are you? When he says this, and we're obviously going off of our English translation, when Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, what are we supposed to take from that? And how does it apply to us today? Let's listen to just these Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Um, The text will be on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can follow along with me. Listen to these words. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of my name. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. 
For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The setting here before you. Thanks be to God. Amen. So Matthew gives us a bit of a picture of what the setting is supposed to be like here. What's the first thing we hear about where Jesus is going? Why do we call it the Sermon on the, right? And he's going up a mountain. And Luke tells it different, right? It's not the Sermon on the Mountain, Luke. It's the Sermon on the Plain, right? And Luke and Matthew are both trying to emphasize certain aspects. I'm sure Jesus gave this sermon. If he's a good preacher, he gave it several times, right? So we know that Jesus probably preached this in several different places. And so Luke and Matthew, who experienced this, gave their perspectives of when these sermons were given. But Matthew here, Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish gospel in Scripture, Matthew's audience is largely Jewish, whereas Luke's audience is mixed, Jewish and Gentile, right? That's why Luke also authored Acts, because the gospel is going out out of Jerusalem to the rest of the world. But Matthew is really trying to emphasize certain things about the settings here. So we envision, let's, let's put ourselves there. Jesus is going up a mountainside. Some bells are supposed to go off there for us of other events in Scripture, we're supposed to notice how he's delivering the sermon on a mountainside to 12 disciples and a large crowd is down at the base of the mountain waiting for them to return. We're supposed to notice that he starts with these 10 Beatitudes and the last one in our English translation starts with rejoice and be glad. We're supposed to connect this moment to when God gave the 10 commandments to Moses on the mountainside. And all the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel were sitting around waiting for Moses and the rest of the nation, like the crowd at the base of the mountain, were waiting to hear what God had to teach them. We're supposed to be in awe that instead of God speaking through a prophet on a mountain, God in the flesh was standing there speaking prophetically directly to the people. We're supposed to be moved by how instead of God writing God's word on stone, which can be so easily turned into legalistic weapons against people, Jesus is highlighting the intention and the heart of God behind those first commandments, writing them on human hearts and the minds of those who would listen. Jesus is showing the heart and the intention of God behind the Ten Commandments, or what would be known as the Decalogue in the Jewish community. You see, a similar thing was happening back then in the first century that still happens in Christian circles today. The words and the boundaries that God gave as a gift to people can be used as weapons by God's people against other people. (laughs) You see, after spending 70 years in captivity in Babylon, one of the biggest lessons for me, because I grew up thinking, who's the bad guys in the New Testament? Pharisees, right? And I would just paint Pharisees with a broad brush, right? I didn't care that Nicodemus was a Pharisee came and had just a wonderful conversation with Jesus and became a disciple. I didn't care that Paul was a Pharisee. 
<laughs> and still was a Pharisee after he was converted. I didn't understand that Pharisee was just a line of education, a, a Jewish uh, area of, of knowledge, a school of thought in the Jewish community. One of the most convicting things for me, and I hope it's convicting for you, is that after they spent 70 years in exile in Babylon, that's a, an entire generation of people, Israel came back to the promised land that they had lost. And they saw the destruction throughout the promised land and the temple was destroyed. And these people came up and said, we will never violate God's commands again. We will never let our children be sent back into exile. We will never be the people that disobey God's commandments again. And they wept bitterly over the destruction of the temple. Those people would go on to be who we call the Pharisees. <laughs> so really, really good intention. They did not want to be sent in exile again. They didn't want to disobey God. But what happened the time that Jesus showed up, <laughs> they weren't in threat of going into exile into Babylon. They were under Roman occupation in the promised land itself. And so what started off as really good intentions, we want to follow God's code to the letter, <laughs> had been turned into legalism against God's own people, especially the poor, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. So Jesus is coming along and saying, there are some things we're missing about the law. You're missing the heart behind God's law, which leads to this kind of legalism that we're seeing among the scribes, the leaders of the law, and those like the Pharisees. The people then committed that they would never violate the word of God was actually doing that to the very people that God was wanting to reach the most. And we can still ha see that happen today in Christian circles. Same story, different century, right? In our Christian circles and in our century today, our legalism isn't just about the Ten Commandments written on stone, while that's still a very ongoing conversation today, but it's about personal beliefs, especially the personal beliefs of others that we don't seem to jive or agree with. You see, we've put enormous stock on what a person believes and even base their value and their relationship with us on those beliefs that they hold. If they don't share our similar beliefs, and I'm speaking from experience here, if someone doesn't share our similar beliefs, we find it incredibly difficult to maintain relationship with them. Even before seeing how those particular beliefs even impact the way that they live or treat other people. Where we modern day Christians have become so preoccupied with beliefs, we can drift into legalism over what people believe and what they don't. But what Jesus is emphasizing here in the Sermon on the Mount and what's been so radical and convicting for me is where we focus on beliefs, Jesus focuses on how to be in the world. Jesus is saying, here is the template of how you're supposed to be in the world, where we would talk a lot about what to believe. This is why Jesus said that he had not come to abolish the law, but what? Fulfill the law. Because he is not only pointing to the original intention of God behind 
things like the Ten Commandments, but how those words should be applied and shape our way of being in the world in his current time and place. The same can be true for us today if we are willing to look past our own legalism to how we are supposed to be in the world. I've shared this quote with you before, but this is such a powerful quote to me that shapes history in such a profound way. Uh, The scholar Robin Myers once said, Consider this, there is not a single word in the Sermon on the Mount about what to believe, only words about what to do. It is a behavioral manifesto, not a propositional one. Yet three centuries later, when the Nicene Creed became the official oath of Christendom, there's not a single word in it about what to do, only words about what to believe. Huge, huge shift. This next quote by the great Methodist missionary to India, E. Stanley Jones, um, also said, if the church would have made the Sermon on the Mount its creed, we would have a different church and a different world. Imagine if the Sermon on the Mount was the creed of the church and how it would shape who we are in the world. And I don't know about you, friends, but the more I sit with these thoughts, the more I believe them. Let's look again at the Beatitudes and at the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. Listen to these words and imagine this to be the creed of the church. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's always confused me growing up is seeing the fight over the Ten Commandments in public spaces, right? Now, I don't think it's the government's role to impose religion on people. Can I just get an amen for that? Okay. Even my religion I don't think it's appropriate for the government to impose my religion on other people. But what's always conflicted me about it is that when Christians lead the fight to put the Ten Commandments in schools or governments, why is it the Ten Commandments and not the Beatitudes? If we are Christ followers, why are we wanting to do Moses' words and not Jesus? I think of blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Blessed are the merciful in courtrooms. Blessed are the peacemakers, again, the Department of Defense. Maybe blessed are the meek facing the president's desk in the White House. Blessed are the pure in heart in the Senate. We're not pushing for those things, are we? (laughs) It always confounds me where we drift into legalism of saying these are the legal rules that 
the rest of the people need to abide by, rather than posting them for ourselves and saying, how are we called to be in the world around us? I'm going to spend four weeks on this, so we're not going to get into the details of these blessed are you's right now, but I want to look at the big picture and just highlight two things for these Beatitudes for us today. Can you notice that how we can read them as often just referring to other people and not ourselves? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit must be other people, right? It must not have anything to do with me. <laughs> blessed are those who mourn. Oh, it's those who are mourning. What about when we mourn? What about those places where we find ourselves mourning? We can look at it as if it's just referring to other people. And we can also notice that when we often read these things, it's as if they're passive. Uh, James' brother, or Jesus' brother James wrote a whole book, and he's, he's great. You should read his book in the Bible. If anyone knows his brother well, it's James, Right? Um, and he, he said this one thing that always sticks with me. He said, what good is it if you say, peace be with you, go in peace, and they're still hungry? When a hungry or thirsty person comes and has their needs met, and that's like a Wesleyan verse if we ever saw one, right? How can you come along and say, peace be with you, the Lord be with you, and send them on their way when they're still hungry, they're still naked, <laughs> they're still broken, you're just putting a spiritual Band-Aid on their hearts and sending them away. Why not fill their stomachs too <laughs> as a blessing from God? And this is what we, I think we often read these Beatitudes is like, blessed are you who mourn for you will be comforted. Go now in peace. <laughs> no, it's this very proactive promise that those who are mourning now will be comforted. And the disciples who are hearing this are then called to be the comforters, <laughs> those who would go and comfort those who are mourning and receive comfort for their mourning too. My friends, Jesus is literally pointing out the, the positions in life that are seen as the most destitute and filled with struggle. He is pointing out poverty, powerlessness, hunger, thirst, persecution, and calling them blessed. What does he mean by these being blessed? Jesus is pointing out here that God is in those positions and inhabits those most dire spaces the most. Jesus is saying that those the world think nothing good about and care so little for are precisely the people that God is seeking to bless, to comfort, to show mercy, to even give the whole earth. This doesn't just refer to other people, my friends, but to us when we inhabit those spaces too. God is there with us, for us, advocating for us and for others. These are also not passive realities, but areas we are invited into to be a source of God's blessing for other people as well. Whenever we see the poor, the hungry, the meek, the peacemakers, there is an opportunity for us to not only see how God is already at work through them, but to see how we can join that blessed work ourselves as well. These beatitudes are proactive, encompassing postures of being in the world. These beatitudes have radical implications for how we approach 
the issues of our culture today. No matter the issue from the political to the theological, how are we looking at our way of being in this world rather than being preoccupied with particular beliefs? How are we looking for the ways God is active and blessing the areas where we only see a lack of value? How are we looking to be faithful in the work of being a blessing from God to the poor, to the powerless, to the meek, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst, and those who are merciful, the peacemakers and the persecuted? Blessed are those who allow these words from Jesus to be fresh and relevant for them today. Here's a few uh, action steps for us this week. I'm going to get a, a little contemplative here. I uh, want to invite you internally to think about this relationship between being and belief. Oftentimes in our world, we start here and then we move our feet, right? Well, one of the profound shifts for me is, is how do you teach a kid to ride a bike? Do you sit them down and say, what do you believe about that bicycle? No, you get on the bike, right? And the same with swimming. Like anything that's tactile, we go and we do those things, right? And growing up in, in evangelicalism, all I heard was songs, you know, and sermons. We didn't really recognize communion. There was no active, like, liturgy that we actually participated in to practice your faith, right? Food pantry had, did, didn't really have anything like that. But ancient Christianity, they knew this, that it was actually doing, living our faith out that taught us where our convictions were. It is in service to the poor, the powerless, the meek, the vulnerable, that we actually learn where our priorities are. So oftentimes we can get in so many heated arguments, and I'm not saying that what we believe doesn't matter. Don't hear me say that. What I am saying is that we can get so distracted over the list of beliefs in our mind that not only we don't go and practice our beliefs, but we downplay the convicting reality of what living out our beliefs can teach us. Some of the most profound moments for me is when I go, when I've gone into ministry and actively lived out my faith. I've been taught so much by other people and by the presence of God by living that out. So think about this relationship in your own life. Are we prioritizing beliefs over being and doing? Or how, how are we allowing our being and our doing in the world to transform and teach us about what we believe? Look for the ways that God is advocating for you my grandma used to have this saying that was, you know, I just got, just got old, but now I see how important it is. Count your blessings, count them one by one. Anyone heard that song before? Yeah. But really, as I got older, I realized how important that is. Especially in the world today, we can get so focused on just the negative and miss all the great things that are happening in our lives. And there's so many things you will... You will you will never run out of the good things that are happening in your life if you just start thinking about those things. But see how God is really advocating for you in your life, even in, especially in the areas where you feel like there's no value or hope. 
Look for ways that God is on the move, actively advocating for you. Because when you do that, this next action step is going to be a lot um, more proactive, where you look for the ways that God is asking you to advocate for others. There is ample opportunity in the world today to look for ways to advocate for other people. Um, one of the one of the biggest things for me, and I know you, I know I tell my story, but it the a lot. But God has done such a tremendous shift in my life that I, that I just keep point can't get rid of it. I keep pointing back to it because as, as far right politically and theologically as you can imagine, that's where I started with my faith. And so I had all of these ideas and, frankly, myths about those people <laughs> on the other side. And I started painting with really broad strokes like I did with the Pharisees, right? So I really believed that you could not be a Democrat and a Christian. Just believed. And I grew up in Nampa, and I thought Cathedral of the Rockies is where all the heretics went. I really believed that. And then when I was part of the Church of the Nazarene, I thought, well, you know what? There was like 2,000 years of church history, but thankfully the Church of the Nazarene came along and got it right. You know, we finally, our tribe got it all right and perfect together. I started painting those broad strokes, but you know, as, as I started, started expanding my worldview and understanding things outside of that, and met Democrats, <laughs> and I like, talked with, with people, especially in the LGBTQ community and women who had experienced the complexity of reproductive care that I, as a man, was just completely oblivious to. Just all the complexities of life of how little and small I made it so that I could feel safe in it, right? Rather than taking that, those steps of faith and hearing stories of the people that I had all these strong convictions about. It was so important for me to open up those things. But you know what the temptation is when your pendulum is swinging? Start go on the other side, right? And you can start thinking, I don't think you can be a Republican and Christian. Is that true? You put that sign down. <laughs> Whenever we paint with broad strokes, we are overcoming people that we don't know right? And you can look in your own family and see the diversity among any group of people that you're talking to. One of the biggest things that blew my mind is that LGBTQ people don't agree on everything, right? Whenever you talk to a group of people and you're like, you know what, they all believe this. That's not true. <laughs> all Methodists believe this one thing. That's not true. All Catholics believe that that's just not true. All Republicans, all whenever you cast a broad blanket, you're just not encompassing the whole of that person. So what's so important about trying to advocate for people, it's so simple, listening. <laughs> Get to know the people that you have strong beliefs about and let their embodiment of their actual lives shape those beliefs that you hold about them. And I guarantee you, you will come away with that thinking, you know what? My preconceived notions about those people were wrong. My preconceived ideas about what their reality was need some adjusting. It's relationship. And so when you're wanting to advocate for people or you want to be advocated for, it starts in relationship. 
And I know it's difficult in, in, in the world today, but the people that you feel like you disagree with the most, just find a way to have a conversation if it's possible. Because that's how I was changed. <laughs> all, all the way over as far right as I could go in rural N Nampa, Idaho, homeschooled K through 12. I was able to be changed by loving conversations. And that's, I really truly believe that that's the way forward. If we can truly talk to each other and listen, we can find some ways forward. So find ways of advocacy that starts with listening to the very people that you want to advocate for. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.